This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Happy Thanksgiving week to all of you. I guess it's time to start saying season's greetings, isn't it? Seems appropriate to us from Thanksgiving on to, say, the new, the new year. And unfortunately, it's my duty to report a, a bit of bad news with, with some hope uh, in it. This comes to us via my Facebook pal and, and three-time Radio Parallax guest, David Talbot. David continues, by the way, to recover from the stroke he suffered last year. His writing is as pithy as ever, and he certainly appears to be on the mend and on the way back. But unfortunately, his associate and, and our good pal, Mr. Will Durst, has himself suffered a stroke. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, comedian and Chronicle columnist Will Durst has been forced to cancel his appearances since he suffered a stroke on October 7th. The political humorist hasn't missed a performance in 30 years. But backstage at the Presidio Theater before his scheduled appearance on October 7th, he was waiting to take the stage as part of the 60th anniversary celebration for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Another performer noticed that Will was having some trouble moving and suggested he go to the emergency room. I can't, he said. I need to tell my jokes. According to wife Debbie, a few minutes later, he collapsed, bringing to mind the old vaudeville line, Is there a doctor in the house? In fact, there was. The mother of one of the mime troupe performers, she rushed backstage to find Will on the floor, took his vitals, and called for an ambulance. According to Debbie Durst, Will has not been hospitalized since the day he was born. His stroke was hemorrhagic, meaning that a blood vessel has broken in the brain that required that a hole be drilled into the skull to drain the fluid and relieve the pressure. And while it's true that they can do miraculous things these days if you're having a stroke and it is from a blood clot, that easy fix is not available to you if your stroke involves bleeding. Reportedly, after three weeks in the ICU, Durst was transferred to another unit for rehab, but the fluid persisted and he developed an infection which required a return to the ICU a couple of weeks later. Throughout this six-week ordeal, Will Durst has never lost consciousness. He can read, but at present cannot write, which is a struggle because he would write every day for his website or his weekly newsletter, Burst or Durst. Said wife Debbie, his brain is trying to reboot itself and and reinstall many apps. Friends and fans had been wondering why he had not posted on Facebook or Twitter for a month. Debbie has been acting as the gatekeeper in all this, saying, I've been warning people under threat of pain and torture to keep this off all social media platforms. But the couple felt it was finally time to make a public announcement, which we are now a part of. Reportedly, he is continuing to joke, at least with his nursing staff, on a daily basis. One day this week, he evidently has asked one of them if she would be so kind as to fetch him a beer. We certainly wish Mr. Will Durst, America's foremost political comic, a speedy recovery. Undoubtedly, his next public appearance will not be in time for Durst Presents, the big, fat, year-end kiss-off comedy show, in this case, number 27. Said Debbie Durst, he'll still be leading the comedy caravan, but he'll be doing it from his hospital bed. Will Durst's many, many appearances on this program over the years have made us a better show, and we certainly look forward to having him back in 2020. You know, I think at this point we need to pull up a couple of quips and funny lines from various comedians. How about this one from Phyllis Diller, 
who once said, I want my children to have all the things I couldn't afford. Then I want to move in with them. To facilitate this process, I pulled a book off the shelf titled, Oh, What an Awful Thing to Say, the kind of book I'm sure that Will would thoroughly approve of. Here's one from Oscar Wilde we've, we've been fond of in the past. Said Mr. Wilde, Frank Harris is invited to all the great houses in England. Once. And this one we're not sure is legit, but reportedly, Benjamin Disraeli was once asked to explain the difference between misfortune and calamity. To which he replied, if William Gladstone fell into the Thames, it would be a misfortune. If someone dragged him out again, it would be a calamity. Asked about the Beatles, that lion of right-wing commentary, William F. Buckley, said, and I'm going to try and do a Buckley impression as I say this, which is going to be lost on most everybody, but nevertheless, the Beatles are not merely awful. I would consider it sacrilegious to say anything less than they are God-awful. They're so unbelievably horrible, so appallingly unmusical, so dogmatically insensitive to the magic of the art that they qualify as the crowned heads of anti-music. And a bit of political commentary about former British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. William Whitelaw once remarked, Wilson's going around the country stirring up apathy. And commenting on Socrates was a man named Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said, the more I read him, the less I wonder that they poisoned him. And I think my favorite awful things to say about, well, Arkansas voters, in this case from Mr. Wilders himself, the last time I was privileged to share a beer with America's foremost political comic, I told him that I thought this was his greatest single line. I said it was back in 1992 when Clinton first made a big splash on the American political scene. You pointed out that, yes, he was a governor, but he was governor of Arkansas, adding Arkansas, you know, where people are like, hey, look at him. He's wearing shoes. That did put a smile on Will's face, to which he added, I had forgotten that one. We will ease into the show now with a few memes that I picked up over the past week or two. I don't really know who Serafina Spang is, but somebody forwarded a piece from her. It was an answer to the tweet from Donald Trump, wherein he said, Like every American, I deserve to meet my accuser. Ms. Spang tweeted in response, If he wants to meet face-to-face with his accusers, there's about 25 women waiting. And uh, our friend Ron Cooper from our Access Sacramento days sent around one that said if Obama paid off a porn star or cheated on three wives or had kids by three women or married an immigrant or had a host of campaign staffers plead guilty to federal crimes or spent one-third of his time in office at resorts, dot, 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 Republicans would turn the world upside down. Our Australian correspondent, Pamela Taylor, recently posted an item that (laughs) had a little cartoon character under the headline, the foreigners are stealing our jobs. I don't know whether this really did come from SpongeBob SquarePants, but it looks like the cartoons were from it. The reply to that statement, the foreigners are stealing our jobs, was, yes, Patrick, with your high school diploma, Mohammed the neurologist stole your job. Our Santa Cruz correspondent, Sammy, posted an item that had a comparison of Benghazi, under a picture of Hillary Clinton, and Russia, under a picture of Trump. Under Benghazi, it noted 72 months, zero charges, zero indictments slash pleas, zero prison sentences. 
testifies for 11 hours. Under Trump, it said 22 months, 215 charged, 38 indictments slash pleas, five prison sentences and counting, testifies for zero hours. I think those numbers are correct. We hope, dear listener, you took in at least some of the impeachment hearings going on in Washington because it's interesting to listen to what the people say and then see what the media says they said. If you listen long enough, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll eventually get all the points out there. But I like to get it straight on occasion. A political cartoonist summarized this whole thing pretty well, at least the aspect of how Republicans are dealing with it. And try as I might, I, I can't read the guy's little scrawl signature. But the title was Evolution of a Trump Scandal. Shows an elephant in a suit. Panel one says, it never happened. In panel two, he says, okay, it might have happened. In panel three, he says, of course it happened. So what? In panel four, he says, it happened, but it wasn't wrong. In panel five, he says, it happened, and it was wrong, but it isn't impeachable. In the final panel, he says, it's impeachable, but I don't care. And, you know, I think that pretty well summarizes the evolution of the positions being taken by Republicans. There's a local rag that turns up in my in my 7-Eleven. It's a, it's, it's, it's a right-wing publication. It looks like it's got a lot of money behind it. It's called the Epic Times. The reportage seems to be somewhere to the far right of Steve Bannon. Their headline recently, well, before, before EU Ambassador Sondland... Uh, actually testified, they were trying to say, oh, this is all hearsay. Oh, someone heard someone else's conversation? I suppose you're the kind of person that reads that newspaper. You you look at it and go, you're darn tootin'. Of course, after that, Sondland turned up before Congress and said, um, oh yeah, it was a quid pro quo. Everybody knew that. I was quite certain on that. Although he depicted himself as someone who was unwilling to participate in the plot. Apparently, Sondland had given some, uh, closed-door testimony previously that, uh, well, it needed, he probably needed to get his memory refreshed on a few things. And once it was refreshed, he came forward and connected multiple members of the administration to the Ukraine affair. Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney, all were well aware, all were well aware of Trump's intentions, according to Sondland. Although Trump never directly told him the White House was withholding $391 million in military aid to extort investigations from Ukraine, Sondland said it was clear that was the goal. As we go to press today, it turns out that CNN is now reporting that the person in the administration who put that aid on hold did so the same day that Trump made the phone call. Which takes us back to a couple of memes. I'm not sure who posted this one, but it was... A quote from Edward R. Murrow, speaking in 1959, said the legend of broadcast journalism, when the politicians complain that TV turns the proceedings into a circus, it should be made clear that the circus was already there and that TV merely demonstrated that not all the performers are well-trained. And I'm not sure where it was I picked this one up, but, but it is a mock pro-Trump rant, which goes as follows. All you stupid libs have against Trump is evidence and several honorable witnesses in his administration and the admissions of Giuliani and Mulvaney and crap like that. It's a friggin' witch hunt. Anyway, we used to do a stat of the day on the program. We've kind of gotten out of the habit, but I think we have one for today's show. 
which is that according to the New York Times, President Trump has tweeted 11,390 times since taking office. And his rate of tweeting has tripled over the past three months from his 2017 pace. In all, it should be noted, Trump has singled himself out for praise 2,026 times. He has attacked at least 630 people and things in 5,889 tweets. Another 1,710 tweets promoted his conspiracy theories. 36 called the news media, quote, an enemy of the people, unquote. And in 16 tweets, he referred to himself as everyone's favorite president. But, you know, just to show that, like Will Durst, we, we attempt to be, you know, at least to some degree, equal opportunity political bashers, we do have to comment on the widely reported statement that former Vice President Joe Biden said, I, I believe it was before one of the debates, he said that he opposes legalizing marijuana at the federal level on the grounds that more study is needed to determine if it's a gateway drug. Gateway drugs, of course, lead people to harder substance abuse. Biden did say he supports medical marijuana and that weed should be decriminalized. Well, yeah, it's being decriminalized all over the country. The big stop is the feds, you know, the government that Biden would like to be the head of. Meanwhile, it's been reported that residents of Chicago public housing could face eviction for marijuana use, even though the drug will soon be legal for both medical and recreational use in the state of Illinois. The Housing Authority has warned that marijuana is still illegal under federal law, so those who consume it in public housing would still be guilty of drug-related criminal activity. And no, we're not sure how residents of Chicago public housing are going to turn out on Election Day, at least uh, if Joe Biden's on the ticket. We'll have to see. Anyway, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Week magazine. It was a good week last week for staying married. This is on the basis of the fact that Bill Gates has apparently regained his crown as the world's richest man. The Microsoft founder, age 64, has a reported net worth of $110 billion, which is a billion more than Jeff Bezos, who recently paid $35 billion to ex-wife Mackenzie Bezos in a divorce settlement. And it was a bad week last week for President Donald J. Trump. I think that's clear on multiple fronts. The reason we're calling it a bad week for the president is that his buddy, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, has apparently rebuffed President Trump's offer for a fourth meeting with the dictator. Kim Jong-un is saying that Pyongyang got nothing from the earlier summits, and added, we will no longer gift the U.S. president with something he can brag about. Ouch! This gets better. This put-down came just hours after Trump responded to a North Korean state news commentary that called Joe Biden, our former vice president and a 2020 Democratic candidate, a rabid dog who should be, quote, beaten to death with a stick, unquote. 
Trump, being as much of a gentleman as he always is, subsequently tweeted that Biden was, quote, somewhat better than that, unquote. Yes, folks, our president on record is stating that he believes that Joe Biden is somewhat better than a rabid dog that should be beaten to death with a stick. How nice to have some dog-themed music for the holidays. And it was an ugly week last week for Roger Stone, whom the week speculated may have pulled one dirty trick too many. Writing in CNN.com, Errol Lewis said Roger Stone's long history of skullduggery has finally come to an end. After decades of political dirty tricks, the self-described agent provocateur was convicted last week of seven counts of witness tampering, making false statements, and lying to Congress during the Russia investigation. Roger Stone's central lie was his denial that he worked with WikiLeaks to release emails that Russian hackers stole from the Democratic National Committee at key moments in the 2016 campaign. In dramatic testimony before Congress, Trump's former deputy campaign chairman Rick Gates recalled a phone call between Trump and Roger Stone that took place days after the first WikiLeaks email dump, with Trump happily declaring after he hung up that more information was forthcoming. It should be noted that for 29 years, Roger Stone was Donald Trump's most devoted ally, urging him to run for president until he finally agreed to do so in 2015. Both Mr. Miller and I saw the documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, which is available here and there. And uh, we both can recommend it to you, dear listener, very highly. During the Russia investigation, Roger Stone repeatedly lied to Congress because the truth about Trump's complicity with WikiLeaks and Russia would have been damaging to his pal. Now the question is, will Trump reciprocate that loyalty with a presidential pardon? Given Donald Trump's long, long history of throwing people under the bus, we're going to guess that no, he's not going to reward that loyalty. I say he is. Well, we'll see. And in other WikiLeaks-related news, it turns out that Swedish prosecutors have abandoned an investigation into a 2010 rape accusation against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, saying too much time has passed for evidence to be gathered reliably. Prosecutor Eva Marie Presson said the accuser's statement was credible and reliable, but that the evidential situation has been weakened. Assange, who denies the accusation, avoided extradition to Sweden by taking refuge at the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2012. Evicted just last April, he is now in prison in London for breaching bail and is fighting U.S. attempts to extradite him on charges including conspiring to hack government computer networks. Notice that the U.S. government's being very cautious about how it's going after Assange, knowing that he's probably got a few arrows left in his quiver. You know, but if we here at Radio Parallax were going to pick uh, the four people most responsible for the Donald Trump presidency, we might go with Vladimir Putin, Roger Stone, Julian Assange, and James Comey. If you'd like to add to that list, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We do enjoy hearing from you, dear listener. We'd like to cite Glenn for a particular thanks and reminding us... 
that there is a conjunction taking place. Yes, last Sunday, the closest approach of the planets Venus and Jupiter took place when they were about three moon widths apart, 1.4 degrees. These alignments are very cool and do take place on a pretty regular basis, I think every 13 months or so, 14 months, something like that. But it is nice to see the third and fourth brightest objects in the sky lining up next to one another. So, uh, again, thanks for the heads up, Glenn. The two will remain reasonably close to one another for the next many days. So, you know, you might want to go out and take a look. Observe where it is the sun went down, wait a while, and look a little bit left of that. Sometimes when the two planets line up next to one another, it's quite spectacular. This is not one of the more spectacular appearances. During one of the more exciting ones several years back, my buddy Kevin was giving me a call. So I clicked on and said, the one on the left is Venus, the one on the right is Jupiter. There was a long pause, after which he asked, how did you know what I was about to ask you? I said, well, it's after five o'clock, it's dark, you're driving home, you're going to be looking up in the sky, and you're going to see something quite unusual. Two very bright objects next to one another. Who are you going to call? And I got to repeat this stunt a few years later when my friend Michael called me up from his position on an observation deck in Marin County. Before he could fully get out his query as to what was up in the sky, <laughs> I told him it was Venus and Jupiter. Anyway, in this apparition, I have so far been unable to perform my little bit of astronomical Karnak routine. But I guess I can look forward to February of 2021, which is the next time the two planets will line up. You know, we need some some science news, some, some at least neutral news, maybe even some good news. Well, in fact, we do have a spot of good news for wildlife. Last week, the Mid-Peninsula Regional Open Space District, and no, I don't know too much about them, but they do control quite a bit of land out on the peninsula. In fact, they own 65,000 acres in the peninsula, an area which is twice the size of San Francisco, spread across San Mateo and Santa Clara counties. It was created by voters back in 1972 to preserve wildlife, protect open space, and provide public recreation. Well, the district evidently began leasing some of its property to cattle ranching about a decade ago, and they did have a plan in place to kill mountain lions and coyotes who were preying on the cattle. After word of this got published by the Bay Area News Group in its various publications, there was an outcry from both environmental groups and the public. So some public meetings were held, the group spoke uh, opposing the plan, and the district's general manager, Anna Ruiz, said, as a conservation agency... Midpen prioritizes wildlife protection, adding as a land management agency, our conservation grazing partners are asking for help in managing these conflicts. Based on input from our wildlife advocacy partners and the public after our October 22nd board committee meeting, we are no longer exploring a three strikes option. And I guess what that translates into English is that they are con continuing their current practices are prohibiting lethal removal of mountain lions and coyotes. In their article on this by Paul Rogers, 
The East Bay Times quoted Tiffany Yap, biologist with the Center for Biological Diversity, saying, we're glad to see mid-pen officials dropping the truly terrible idea of killing Bay Area mountain lions. They noted that officials at the San Mateo County Farm Bureau who had supported the plan could not be reached for comment. Seven ranchers evidently lease about 11,000 acres from the district, and last year the ranchers grazed 594 cattle in five district preserves. Last year, seven calves were killed by predators, which is a rate of 1.2%. Since 2013, when it first began keeping stats, 22 calves, cattle, and steer have been killed on district lands. Well, you know, isn't that just part of ranching? It's always struck me as, as very odd that uh, the, the fiercely independent group of individuals that you know, consider themselves to be ranchers will lease land and then demand that government agencies step in to cull predators. Anyway, good news for the mountain lions. Enough of that. There has been some good news this past week for football fans, at least if you're a fan of the Niners and Cal Bears. The California Golden Bears finally broke a 10-year losing streak to Stanford, which means Stanford will have to give back the axe. My understanding is that every time Cal gets it back, they have to change the score of the 1982 game, which Stanford inevitably alters to show the final score what it would have been had there not been that remarkable Cal play with all of those laterals that won the game. I think I made mention of the fact on last week's program that I was privileged to attend the Niners-Arizona Cardinals game. I think I mentioned at the top of the show how, how unusual it is sometimes to see the coverage of an event, an event that you witnessed, and how sometimes it doesn't seem to jive with what you saw. 49ers won that game at the last minute with actually like 31 seconds to go, but they started out down 16 nothing. And I was sort of surprised to see, in retrospect, that it was uh, Jimmy Garoppolo's biggest day as a quarterback. Four touchdowns and 400 and something yards. On paper, that would make it a bit of a blowout, but it didn't look that way from the stands. As I say, they only took the definitive lead, which was a score of 30-26 to 26 on a touchdown pass with just 31 seconds on the clock. Now, an odd thing took place in the last uh, half minute of the game, which I did make mention of, I believe, last week. But I would like to briefly quote from a piece that appeared in Larry Brown Sports and got forwarded to me by my pal Jerry Rose. The headline is, 49ers-Cardinals ending turns wild for betters due to last-second touchdown. Noted the piece. Last Sunday's game between the Arizona Cardinals and San Francisco 49ers ended on what appeared to be a meaningless touchdown. But that absurd score had a significant meaning for many of those who bet on the game. Arizona entered the game 13.5-point underdogs at many sportsbooks, though the line was bet down to anywhere from 9.5 to 11.5 points at most places. The Cardinals got out to a 16-0 lead and looked like a lock for those who had taken them plus the points. Then the Niners started to come back and even took the lead 30-26 to on a touchdown pass with 31 seconds left. Even after that touchdown, Cardinal betters were still fine. Arizona had the ball but lost a fumble. The 49ers ran four plays, and Arizona used their timeouts and got the ball back on downs. To my memory, they got the ball back with something like eight seconds on the clock. I joked at that point that in order to win the game, they were going to have to pull off a Cal Bears-type multiple lateral play. And after throwing an incomplete pass with two seconds left on the clock, they did. But on the second attempt at lateral, they dropped the ball, a Niner picked it up, and ran into the end zone, adding six points to the score. 
And, noted Larry Brown Sports, just like that, tons of money changed hands. Those who had the 49ers negative 10 pushed because the final score was 36-26. And those who had them at negative 9.5 or lower won on a miracle cover. Those who had the Cardinals plus 9.5 or lower lost what they thought would be a sure winner. Another factor is the NFL doesn't force teams to kick an extra point on scores at the end of a game that does not affect the outcome. Because of that, the game ended at 36-26 rather than the 49ers kicking it up to go 37-26. Anyway, for the record, Radio Parallax does not encourage wagering on sports. We lean toward Rodney Dangerfield, who once said, I called Gamblers Anonymous, told him I had a problem. They gave me three to one, I wouldn't make it. If you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold All right, this is Radio Parallax. We gotta take a short break, but we're betting you're gonna stick with us. I'm Douglas Everett. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. 